The scripture reading today is in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6 to 22. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-law, two daughters-in-law, go back, each one of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each one of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who would you become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And this they wept out loud. Then Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter, and I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Last week, Johnny started us out in the book of Ruth and explained why we are going through it and gave us a little bit of context. Um, I was chatting with someone this morning and um, just talking about how refreshing it is to have the book of Ruth kind of told and listened to and be a part of like a big church moment. Um, It's such a powerful, powerful story. And with any story um, or narrative, there's always a setting, correct? Like what's the first thing you learn when you're in school, I go think of context and setting, and so that's what we're going to do before we get into what's read. We're going to think a little bit about the setting, Um, and there's three particular aspects that I want to hone in on or focus on as we think about um, the setting before we go to today's portion of the text. 
The very beginning of the book, the story itself, tells us that it is the time of Judges, Ruth 1.1. That's the, the setting. And during the time of Judges, it was a pretty fraught time for Israel in their history, particularly in the way that they treat one another. Um, if you look in the book of Judges, you will read the worst kinds of moments, the worst kinds of treatments between neighbors, politically, socially, societally, institutionally. And you will also see some of the vilest treatment happens specifically to women. So that is part of the setting. And when it is written, the book of Ruth is uncertain. That's the setting. But when it's actually written, so when it would have been put in, where I said, the writings in the Hebrew scripture is uncertain. But it would be sufficient to say that the book's function would have been to be a bit of a corrective for Israel. In many ways, it was acting as a beautiful corrective to the community, not just for the moments of judges, but for other moments, when as a people, they were um, kind of morphing into like a radical understanding of holiness and into nationalism. And so they would have had this book to read or to recite out loud as a community, to act as a beautiful corrective to them. To kind of give them a new imagination for the way that their narrowed imaginations had gone towards human relationships and towards their relationships with God. And it was a book that kind of helped to, to ref, help them reframe other people or the expectations that they might have had around other people. And it was a beautiful, or it is, as we read it, book about courage and resilience. And kind of located in the everyday of making bread and barley and walking along a road and encountering suffering. And so it's this book or this story that helps us to learn how to live in our everyday during the pressures of society and family and economics and law and politics. And it helps us to have an imagination or have a beautiful picture of what it might look like for how we could treat one another and for how we could treat the outsider. Sounds helpful, right? Also very applicable for us today. setting, first setting. It's also set in ancient Israel, in the, far, in the ancient Near East, which was a communal society. And so it was impossible for anyone to live alone. Just want to make that clear. People lived sustainably in community. People did not live alone. And there are some societies where that is still the case today. You cannot live alone. So for an individualistic society, it's very important that we put ourselves in a setting where communal living is necessary for survival. It is also a patriarchal culture. And there is a scholar, Marian Ann Taylor, who I will thank for this, as she describes what it means particularly for Israel and the ancient Near East 
a patriarchal culture. So it was patriarchal, so the father is the head of the household, meaning that men held primary power and key positions in political, religious, and social leadership, and they controlled property by law. It, is, it was also patrilineal, meaning that the line of descent traced through a male. So everything that was organized, familial relationships in societies, would be descended from a male line. So you need a male heir always to keep families intact generationally with property, standing, resources, and name. That comes through the man, patrilineal. Also, patrilocal. And patra in Latin means father. So it comes from pater, from the father, from the male line, the head of the household, as described in ancient Near East culture. And patrilineal meant that women would leave her family to join a husband's family. So a woman, when married, belonged to their family legally. So she would locate her residence in the husband's location, land, or in their tribe. So it is patriarchal, the resources from a government legal stand is run by men. It is patrilineal, everything, resources run through the line of the male line. And it is patrilocal, you go to your father's land. It's really important for us to understand this because as we step into this moment with Ruth and Naomi and Orpha, we have to understand that this is the context in which they live, and the context that we were introduced to like, yes, yesterday, last Sunday, when Naomi's husband dies and her two sons die, and they are left as three women alone in this context. That's the setting. And in order to survive, those widows needed to be drawn into a family, or they wouldn't make it. And not only widows, there were laws, legal laws in Israel and the surrounding culture that would mean that an orphan would also be considered needing to fall into a family line or an outsider. And again, why? Survival. That's the context. And it's also, these are the third part of the setting that we have to understand is that it is set in a spiritual community with a long-standing spiritual practice of lament. The Psalms are filled with robust lament language. Lamentations is itself one long lament. Job shows up with lament. And so Naomi, as we read, shows up and the words that come out of her, she stands alongside Job and alongside the psalmist and alongside the writer of the Lamentations and she brings her lament. And as a woman who is marginalized and alone, her lament and her voice becomes instructional to us which is why it's really important for us to attune to the words that she offers in her lament. So, there's our setting. And we'll dive into the text that Julie read for us today. And where we pick up the narrative is where Johnny left off last week. 
Naomi, her husband is dead. And her two sons are dead. And she is in a land that is not her own. So she has no family to take her in. And she is now responsible for the two women that are with her. And so she hears that the land of Israel, the, le- the reason they left is because there was famine, then instability. And she learns that the food has returned there, so she decides to return home. And they're going to walk. So they set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then they stop and they have a conversation. She stops them. And this is three women standing on the road about to have a conversation about their survival. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you loving kindness as you have shown loving kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you, I might cry. It's sad, right? Oh God, sorry. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go with you to your people. Wow, feel sad about that. Three women. I've been hanging out with these women all week. What happens in this moment is very unexpected. Naomi stops on the road and she decides to emancipate her daughters in law. And she emancipates them with genuine words of gratitude and blessing. It is her right to take them with her. And the words that she uses here is the word loving kindness, which in Hebrew is chesed. And it is a characteristic of God and is the most wide-reaching word for love. She says, may God show you the same chesed, loving kindness, that you've shown me and my sons. And may he grant you rest. I love that word, rest. It's this sense of security. When you feel at rest, it's because you are secure. That there is a kind of peace that you're held And that is not something these women are feeling in this moment. Rest is not really a part of what they're imagining for themselves or imagining for each other. And so she gives gratitude and then she wants to bless them with that rest, that security, that peace, that shalom, that they would be held somewhere 
And she knows that where she's going, the likelihood of them being held is pretty, pretty low. And then what do they both say? No. No. Because they all understand what it means if she goes home alone. So then she gets even more real with them. She can't provide for them. And she explains why. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. She probably likely cannot have any more children. Therefore, she's not, um, she's not a valuable add to a family. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, two sons in one night, twins, right? Would you wait until they grew up? I mean, the absurdity of it, right? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than it is for you. Would you rem- um, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. Naomi is explaining here the Leverite law. It is both in the Mosaic law, and it is a cultural law at that time to protect women. So if your husband died, it was the responsibility of the brother to take you in. As part of the unit and also to have a child with you in order to protect the line of your brother. And so your resources would be maintained, your place would be maintained, your name would be maintained. And so she's explaining, we know this protective law, and guess what? It doesn't apply to us. She's like, even if there's some kind of miraculous situation you're not going to wait for these babies to grow up there's like an absurdity and a tragedy that is being expressed here the protective law doesn't apply to them because they've lost so much and so she's saying to them your chances of survival are better without me in Moab And they're standing there, all three of them, and they know the chances of exclusion are high. They are women with no men who have no children. And she is walking into a space where she is walking with immigrant daughters. Everything stands against them that any male household would take them in. they are very likely, all of them, unwanted. They've been married for 10 years and have no children. Both of them married for 10 years to her sons and have no children. So there's a high likelihood that they would be deemed as infertile, barren women. So they are likely unwanted and the likelihood of them being abused is high. Not only is it likely that they would be unwanted, 
the likelihood that they are stepping into a space where they are going to abuse, be abused in many ways is very high. And so Naomi is like, go home. Don't come with me. Orpha leaves. And let's just be clear, this is not about who is the better daughter. That's a good decision. Orpha makes a good decision. There is no clear way out for any of them. Orpha is a widow, and she has been 10 years married without a child, and so her going back to her own place, she will also likely be stigmatized. So there is a difficult path ahead for her, and I wish we had her story too. So Orpha makes a good decision. And Ruth clings, on the other hand, to Naomi. And then Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Ruth disobeys Naomi. Also surprising. Surprising that Naomi would emancipate and surprising that Ruth would disobey. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Like these ladies are amazing and they're just stepping into the absurd as if um, Ruth has any control over how death would separate them. But what she's saying is that she is willing to take on death with her mother-in-law. And she is resolute. And Naomi hears it. And so what Naomi said to her in gratitude and blessing, may chesed go with you. Now it shows up in the action of Ruth. And that is the glaring thing that this narrative wants us to hold on to in this moment. Chesed is loving kindness that involves going above and beyond what anyone has a right or imagination or audacity to ask for or to expect. It's the kind of love that fights for the dignity and belovedness of the other. And it's costly. And it's the kind of love that God has. That's the story of the Bible. But also in the story of the Bible is God's desire to cooperate and work in human action. And so the point is that chesed, or loving kindness, is embodied in how humans live and behave towards one another. And when we do, that's when we're most truly human. 
It's when we're at home in ourselves. It's how we are intended or we're intended to act. It's a sense of love and loyalty that inspires merciful and compassionate behavior towards one another. Chesed. And here is Ruth. An immigrant, widowed, barren woman who is now showing up with Yahweh kind of love. Surprising. And we have to remember the setting. It's the people who are having a hard time behaving kindly towards one another. And it's the person, the very person that they see as other that is modeling Yahweh kind of love. I um, have been doing these podcasts, as you know, with different people in the community and listening and attuning to people's stories and how God is showing up in the everyday lives of people in our community. And I recently um, interviewed Christy Nelamo, who works for the International Rescue Committee here in Salt Lake. And in the middle of our podcast, uh, Christy was talking about the moment when um, the Afghan crisis happened during this last administration and um, a lot of people were leaving Afghanistan as we saw on the news. And she talked about this particular part in the podcast, a moment where a person on her staff, also an Afghan Muslim man, he showed up with a kind of long-suffering, costly love that she said revealed Jesus to her. And I just thought in the middle of this beautiful podcast, in this everyday life that she lives here in Salt Lake, it's like what a beautiful picture of how unlikely or potentially these frames that we put around people. And in this moment, she is experiencing from this staff member what she would say is a kind of Jesus love. Last night I was at dinner with a really good friend and he has spent the last two years in the mission downtown. And at the mission, um, there's populations of people that are framed in particular kinds of ways. Houseless have been incarcerated. Lots of different frames that we put around particular kinds of people. And he has been living and being there for the last two years. And I love hanging out with him because of the stories that he tells me about the people that he's with. And last night he was telling me about a particular human um, and he said, that human was throwing down, this is his word exactly, he's like, that human was like throwing down kindness that was baffling. And you're just like, yeah, there's stories that we write over people and we have little expectation about what it is that they're going to show up with. And I was recently talking to a mum and her, she and her husband divorced a few years ago and um, her son is now a teenager. And he was sitting with her and he's like, what happened with you and dad? And she said, um, he, he met someone else. And he was like, he met someone else? And she's like, yeah, he met someone else. And her son said, did he meet someone else while he was with you? 
And she said, yeah. And she said, in that moment, he lost it. It was the first time that he'd understood. And um, she said, I just sat there and I held his anger. And then he like calmed down and then he just started to weep. And then um, they kind of had this moment of connection and just, you know, she's attuning to him and wanting to make sure that he's okay. And then she said, I went downstairs and I called his father. And I said, your son needs you. You should come and hang out with him tomorrow. I was like, you? Chesed. She didn't fuel a frame around that man that was her husband. She didn't enter into creating a narrative with her son about him. She created space for her husband to come and her, her father's, her son's father to spend time with his son. There are places and spaces where there is wild, abundant, sacred on display. Maybe in places that we would dare to never hope for. And the narrative is asking us to consider where those places are. Asking us if we're willing to be surprised. To have our frames shifted. And to see kinds of kindness that is baffling. And as I sat with myself and these ladies, I identified some places where I am closed. I am closed to there being potential goodness. And so I would ask you to ask yourself where you might be closed. To encountering a kind of goodness that might be present in people or in places or in spaces that we have othered. Whatever parts or practices of conversation you're in, I am sure there are people that are othered in that space. And the story of Ruth invites us to expect to be surprised. So here they go into Bethlehem. A woman and her daughter-in-law. A surprising combination for this place that they're about to walk into. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? They remember her. And Naomi means pleasant. Can this be this pleasant woman? Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. 
So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I love Naomi for these words. I love her. Yes. It further solidifies for me her strength and her integrity and her personhood. She returns to her place, her community, her family of origin and faith, a people who hold fast to the faithfulness of the Almighty and the promises and provision of God. And she says this, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Saying this kind of thing into a community of faith, for us, it's like, whoa, all right. We're not quite sure how people would respond to words like that. And maybe you've expressed a similar kind of thing in a place of faith, and maybe it's gone well for you. Or maybe it hasn't. I don't know. But I think that maybe potentially she trusted them. They'd just gone through a famine. She understands that they understand suffering. And she says these words, and they stand actually alongside the words of Job. When Job experienced his own suffering, he says something really similar. As surely as God lives, who, is de- who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter. And Job says this to his community, and they respond really interestingly, if you remember. They give him words that further isolate him in his sorrow and anger. He says he is having these experiences, that he feels this bitterness, that he believes that God has turned away from him. And they center themselves, their sense of belief, their sense of certainty, their need to defend the truth about God. And then this is what God says to them. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Go to my servant Job, and and he will pray for you. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. This is this picture that sometimes when we try to make sense of God and speak for God, we aren't speaking for God. And this is why I love so much what happens in Job. Unlike Job, there's no narrative of friends coming to correct her. I think that's one of the biggest gifts in Ruth is all the quiet. As they walk back after this interaction with Orpha, they're quiet. The narrative leaves us quiet. And as two women, they have an understanding of each other's loss, but it's not the same. Naomi left and crossed a border with her sons and a husband. Ruth is choosing to go back without the protection of either. So the marginalized experience is unique too. There's a kind of solidarity in some areas, but there's a weight on their own set of circumstances that they carry. They both understand vulnerability and pain and uncertainty, which is its own kind of gift, but it's also different. 
And the further out that we get from certain kinds of vulnerability, the more paying attention that we need to do. The deeper kinds of listening that we need. Because we're likely not able to comprehend the weight that is being held in another location. And the vulnerability of being a woman and a married woman in a society that is already weighty and I think sometimes words like patriarchy can be hard to hear for some of us. For men and for women. Because there's a sense that we all live with difficulty. That life brings difficulty to us all. And that is true. And the reality of being marginalized in any society means the weight of life-shifting, difficult, tragic circumstance means that the weightier set of circumstances land on those who are marginalized. So the vulnerability of being a woman in this society, married, is already weighty. And then you add on to it the tragedy of death and infertility and all that comes with that. And she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. And before we get to words like faithfulness and goodness and provision and redemption, we must sit with words like bitterness and emptiness and afflicted and misfortune. And it can be uncomfortable for us when we hear words like, God has let me down. Or God has turned away from me. Or God doesn't love me. Or God hasn't provided to, for me. And when we get uncomfortable with those kinds of words, we can easily jump to solving. Or fixing or explaining, or sense-making. Or if we have a propensity to celebration and victory, we can jump ahead somewhere. And none of those things are unimportant. They are all important, but in the moment of suffering, they are misplaced. And so in those moments, we would do well to learn the quiet and the action of chesed, kindness, or solidarity, which is what the book is going to teach us all about. And it is the spiritual practice of lament that helps us to get to an embodied action of what kindness could look like, to what love 
and loyalty and costly giving could show up like. And Sunshan Ra, who talks about lament, says that lament challenges us to say that maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I don't know everything there is to know about God. Lament is allowing space for honest expression of anguish around injustice and sorrow and pain. And when we listen, we can lament alongside. And it may change the way we act toward our neighbor. It may change the way we see justice enacted in our communities. Missio, God's love holds us and will never let us go. And the circumstances of life sometimes draw in and it's hard to grasp how or where that love is. And there's a tension there. And there are people living in that tension. And maybe you are one of them. And if you are living in that tension, your lament is a holy, sacred practice. And the sound of your voice and those who are lamenting is a spiritual practice that we join. And that as we begin to join, we understand how to become participants in growing communities that know how to act towards each other. And as we learn and as we grow, and as we act, a picture of shalom emerges, a picture of peace, a picture of wholeness, like it did in the time the judges ruled. Thank you, Ruth. Like it did in the midst of resettling Afghan refugees in Salt Lake City fleeing like it did and does in the mission among houseless communities of folks who know how to throw down kindness. And in the midst of divorce. And so as we come to this table, we come to a picture of one who is willing to provide costly love a loyal love, chesed kind of love, who sets a table and invites us in to a place where we can express honestly where we are, why we're there, understanding that that love holds us and will hold us and demonstrates through a costly picture of sacrificial loyal love to us.
So as you come to this table, I just want you to think about ways that you might need to be surprised. Where your frames or your categories are boxed and locked and might need to become more spacious. Or maybe there's a lament that you bring to this table or there's a lament of another that you bring to this table. In hopes at arriving at a place where we all know and learn and live into growing how to act in chesed towards one another. Let's pray. Spirit, this book was really uncomfortable probably for the people of Israel. And maybe it's a little uncomfortable for some of us. And so I pray that you would call out of us a new spaciousness, a new invitation to either continue to lament or to learn to lament or to attune to those who are lamenting so that we can be communities that embody the kind of loyal love that was embodied in Ruth and is embodied still today in our communities. Spirit, would you grow us? Would you challenge us? Would you comfort us? Would you bring presence to us? And would you make us whole? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.